Hi, everybody. Can you hear me all the way back there? My name is Isaac, and I'm a very grateful member of this blessed fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to thank the committee for inviting Millie and I here. Where we live, the land is rather flat, and we are not accustomed to the mountains. And it was a sort of a pretty rough trip. It bothers me a little bit when you're going around a mountain and you see a sign that looks like a snake that's had an alcoholic convulsion. <laughs> and on top of that, they got a big sign that says, Watch out for falling rocks. I'm telling you, it doesn't add to your serenity. I'm just an ordinary drunk. Uh, I didn't have to go to college or high school anywhere to get this way. I barely got out of grammar school. I'm not a public speaker. And I'm so nervous, I, it's unbelievable. I know you can hear my heart beating out there, <laughs> but all I ask, <clears throat> all I ask you to do is have a little tolerance and let me get calmed down. I'll be all right in a few minutes, I believe. <clears throat> now, a lot of drunks come into AA and say that circumstances brought them into Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I'm a little different. A circumcision got me here. <laughs> I'm of the Jewish faith, and when the baby boy is eight days old, they have a beautiful ceremony. And naturally, a little baby squirming and crying, and you can't do much with it. And Millie tells me I ought to find some other word, but I don't know any other word. Uh, what the godmother does is make a little sugar kit and dip it in the wine and stick it in the baby's mouth. And after a few drops, well, he don't give a damn what you do to him, really. I suppose the Jewish race is probably the most optimistic people in the whole wide world. We're the only race of people I know. Well, Gentiles are doing it now, but I think we were the ones that started it. The only race of people I know that'll cut off the end of something before they know how long it's going to be. <laughs> young man, my mother told me that she thought maybe I would have a problem with drinking, because when they put that little sugar tit in my mother, that wine, soaked wine, I actually smiled. And I got drunk, I suppose. But I never had any more trouble with booze until I was about 10, 11 years old. And I began to drink at that age. I drank until I was 41. And in between the time of 10 and 41, I had a, I had a rough, rough road. I became a daily drinker. I didn't drink periodically. I didn't drink normally. I've never quite understood what the hell they mean by being a normal drinker. Like saying you're a normal nut. Or he just had a normal case of cancer or something. 
The young man that brought me into Alcoholics Anonymous was young enough to be my son. I worked at the Norfolk newspapers as a web pressman. W-E-D, web. And that are the boys that actually print the papers. And everybody drank in the building, so it wasn't noticed. In fact, there were some there, just about everybody, anyhow. And there were some there in the newspaper who didn't know I drank until I had sobered up. They thought I acted that way normally. But this young man took me to my first meeting. He asked me not to be, not to get drunk, and I didn't. I drank about a pint. My average, when I really got into it, was about a fifth a day to keep on a normal keel. And I drank about a pint that day, and I attended my first meeting. I walked in, <clears throat> and I've never been able to describe it, but somehow or another, I felt that I had been looking for this place all my life. I had wanted to do something about my drinking a long, long time before I ever got to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't know what to do. <clears throat> Everybody that I knew, everybody that I associated with, drank. And I had gotten to the point in my life where I had to drink to live and live to drink. It was a vicious circle. I worked to make enough money so that I could buy enough booze to stay in shape so that I could go to work the next morning. And that's the way I lived for a number of years. When I walked into this meeting, I have never yet, like I said, understood it. But it felt as if I had been looking for this place all my life. I suppose what, looking back in retrospect, it was the first place I had walked into in a long, long time that people were actually glad to see me. They came over and they shook my hand. They said that I was welcome. I hadn't been welcome in quite a number of places for quite a number of years. Um, I've lost a lot of weight. At that time, I weighed about 170 pounds. <clears throat> and I thought I was pretty good with my mitt. I used to box a bit when I was younger. And this kind of a character can cause a lot of trouble in bars after you get a few drinks. I was ready to leave the meeting. They talked. Uh, I don't know, you hardly remember much of it. The only thing I do remember about the meeting is strange. But I remember the serenity prayer. And I thought it was absolutely the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. As I was leaving the meeting, a man stopped me by mistake. He thought I was someone else. And when he realized his mistake, he stood there and talked to me. He said, you're new. I said, my first meeting. And he began to, and this man was so lit up with enthusiasm about this newfound thing. He hadn't been in very long. A was new in office, just had started. And he began to tell me his story. And it sounded an awful lot like mine. He'd gone down the road. And he talked me into the idea of buying a big book. I didn't know what he was talking about when he said big book. And I bought the big book. I couldn't, uh, I really didn't want to because I couldn't see myself spending the price of a pint for a book that I didn't really intend to read. But what amazed me was this total stranger. I think this is what really impressed me. He wrote his name, his address, and his telephone number in the book. I lost it later. It was one of the first editions. And he told me that he had the type of job that he could leave most any time. He was practically his own boss. And that if I got up tight to give him a call, and he, we would, and he would meet me, and we could sit and talk over a cup of coffee, because he had found out that a drink of booze would help nothing. It would only make it worse. And I thanked him. As I started away from him, he said, oh, by the way, don't call me after you've taken a drink. I can't help you. But before you take a drink, if you'll call me, 
I'll do anything I possibly can to help you. And I was delighted. So I went back to this hotel that Millie and I had were living in at the time. We had just lost the place of business that we'd gotten into. But we didn't really lose it. We just drank the damn thing up. That's what happened. And I told her that I had found the most beautiful bunch of people I had ever met in all my life. And now I am convinced of it after 29 years that you are the absolute top in people. You really are a beautiful crowd of people. I came in AA. If I can get myself collected. I came in probably the best way for me that you could come in. I came in completely naked. Absolutely naked with nothing. So everything here was brand new. I came in. I had no friends. I had no self-respect. I had no God. I didn't believe in God. Uh, I had nothing. So everything was brand new here. The only thing was that after I had gotten here, you people were talking about God. They didn't talk about it as much then as they do now. I believe if you had, you probably would have run me away. I don't know. But I thought to myself that man was just a biological accident and all this business about God was a bunch of baloney. But the longer I stayed, the more I found out that the ones who were happily sober believed in some supreme being. And so I began to try in some way to get acquainted with him. And I was successful. Now, I was born and raised in Norfolk, or reared in Norfolk. My daddy had a little tiny grocery store, and we lived over the top of it. It was in the heart of the Black Belt, a tough, rough neighborhood. And I learned before I was three years old that stocks don't bring babies. And everybody over five years old carried a switchblade knife. It was a real quiet, nice neighborhood. When I got here, I said <laughs> that the young man had brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. After I'd been in AA for a few years, I found out how I really got here. Really and truly how I got here. I got here on the hopes and the tears and the prayers of a woman and other people too, I suppose, who truly loved me. My wife, my, my mother loved me more than she loved her own life, I suppose. In fact, I think she loved me too well. She loved me to the point that she damn near killed me. And I know in her heart that she used to think that someday, in some miraculous way, this man-child of hers would grow up and walk with dignity as Almighty God intended us to walk. She died long before I ever got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I came in, and some of the things I learned was one thing I did learn, that if we do not want, we must not forget the past, because if we do, we are condemned to relive it. So I don't want to forget the past. I don't dwell on it in a morbid way. But I try not to forget where I came from out of the gutter off of Skid Row. 
And everything that I am, everything that I've got, every single thing that I ever hope to be, I owe to this program. Because through the program, I found a God of my own understanding. And I'm delighted that whoever wrote those 12 steps put that in there. That God of our own understanding. When I first came to AA, it used to worry me because every speaker would get up and say, I was raised in a good Christian home. I finally came to the conclusion, it's a hell of a place to raise kids. So I had to get a God of my own understanding, a very simple way. I'm a simple individual, uneducated. So I had to do this whole thing simply and easily that would suit me. And I think we all do this. So I work my program this way. I try to remember where I came from, not to forget the past. And some of the things that I like to remember when I was drinking is the time that I put Millie in the hospital. We were both drinking at the time. And I was supposed to go and get her out. I got off of work and I thought, well, now that I'm going to get her, I think I'll stop by the beer tavern and have me a couple. I had the money to go get her. Well, I think all of you junks are probably way ahead of me. I had about a hundred and some dollars in my pocket. I woke up the next morning and I had about three dollars left. I don't know what has happened. And I felt utter disgust with myself for letting myself do this. The woman I love. I love her as much as God will intend a man, will allow a man to love a woman. And I had done this to her. And I woke up, I could hardly see her. I didn't want to look at myself. But I had to go and see her. So I got up and I shaved. I caught a bus, went out to Deep Hall Hospital. And when I walked in the door, I had stopped on the way and had me a few belts, and I wasn't feeling too much pain. I was feeling pretty good, really. And when I walked into the room, she began to cry. And I said, take it easy, baby. You ain't got nothing to worry about. <laughs> I'll have you out of here in 30 minutes. I think I had about a buck and a half left out of that hundred and some dollars. Well, we talked a while and cried and both cried. And Monday morning, I tucked my tail between my legs like a whipped cur dog and went back to the newspaper and went up to see the president. The paper was awful small then. We're tremendous now. But it was a small outfit and you could go see the president and borrow money occasionally if it was necessary. And I went up to see Mr. Lewis. And he asked me a question. The question that people have been asking me since I was about 15, 16, 17 years old. When I really got into drinking, sure enough. Why do you do this? I didn't have any answer for it. And he talked to me a while. And finally he gave me a check. And I went over to the hospital and bailed Millias. I should have done something. But it didn't help me. Not my alcoholism. I couldn't see it. Another time, I remember Uncle Sam sent me a little notice. Greetings. And I went to Richmond. I was in my early 30s. I'd been drinking about 20 years, 15 years, awful hard, heavy, hard drinking. And when I got there, uh, I had one pair of socks, I think a pair of shorts, and three pints of whiskey, or four pints of whiskey, in a little zipper bag. But it, I didn't know they were going to do this to me. They took the bag away. Gave me a pair of paper slippers, and that's it. 
And when I finally got around to talking to the man, I had fallen apart. The booze had died out, and I was about to fall apart, and they had to give me some medication so that they could even talk to me. And while this man was talking to me, he asked me a lot of questions. I found out later he was a psychiatrist. I didn't know it at the time. And he asked me how much I drank. I said, I drink all I can get. And he said, I didn't ask you. Uh, he said, don't be smart, I believe he said to me. He said, I asked you a question. I want an answer. And then all of a sudden it dawned on him that I was telling the truth. And I told him I did. I drank all I could buy, all I could bum, all I could steal. And we had a long talk, some rather personal questions. And he wrote on my slip, chronic alcoholism, 4F. 32 years old, 33, whatever I was. In one of the questions, he asked me, in case of death, whom do you notify? One of the questions on the paper. And I had left it blank. 32 years old, living in a little small town. It was small then. I left it blank. And he asked me why. I said, because no, <laughs> I just haven't got anybody. He said, your mother living? I said, no, my mother's deceased. And he kept probing and probing, and finally he got it out of there. My dad was still alive. But we hadn't spoken to each other in a long, long time. We got along like a couple of strange bulldogs. Couldn't see eye to eye. He wanted me to drink like a gentleman, and I didn't know how to do it. So he said, "You mean to tell me that you were born and reared in office, and you have nobody that would claim the body?" I said, "Nobody." He says, and then he asked me about my dad. I said, "Well, the reason I didn't put his name down is because I have caused this old man enough heartache to last him a lifetime." And I didn't want to burden him with any more. Anything happened to me, do whatever you want to do. I think this is a probably a low point in anybody's life. It seems if I had been not in, if I had not been insane, I would have tried to do something about my drinking. But I didn't. Now, a lot of those things are sort of faded away over the years. And I tell you, my mother prayed long and hard for me to somehow, in some way, to get sober. But she died before I ever got here. But I believe with all my heart that her prayers were answered. I really believe that. The thing that I don't want to forget either is that I went to my own mother's funeral so drunk that I don't remember the services. When they opened the car at the cemetery, I fell out. When my mother passed away, I was down on East Main Street. Some of you boys who are in the service probably know what I'm talking, where I'm talking about. That's Skid Row. It's where the ladies of the evening dwell. And that was my hangout, all the beer taverns. You could get anything there you wanted, booze, dope, women, anything you wanted. And that's where I hung out. When my mother passed away, that's where I was. I'd been there for a few days, hold up in one joint, drinking. And my dad couldn't find me. I had a dear friend, Pat O'Brien, long since dead. And my dad found Pat. And he said, Pat, is there anything you can do to help me to find Isaac? I've got to find him. His mother's passed away. And Pastor says, Mr. Copeland, you're going back home and I can find him. I've got a good idea where he is. Anyhow. The next thing I knew, Pat was there in his joint. And he says, Isaac, finish your... I was, take, I was drinking out of a water glass that I usually did. And he says, finish your drink. Your mother's passed away and I want to take you home. I said, Pat, old buddy, she'll be just as dead when we get there. Why don't you sit down and have a drink with me? He couldn't do anything with me. So he sat down and we finished. I let, he let me finish my drink. Put me in the cab and took me home. I don't remember too much of it. I woke up the next morning. And my dad gave me a tongue lashing that I can still remember. 
and told me that I had to get ready to go to Zion. Those of you who are not acquainted, Jewish people are buried the same day as possible. If they die, say, five o'clock in the morning, they're buried that evening. Now, my mother had died on the Jewish Sabbath, and they don't bury them on Sabbath, so they're buried the next day, and that's the way they had an opportunity to find me. And he said, get ready. I said, man, no way. I can't make it. I was about to fall. I was flying in all directions. I'd been on a terrific drunk. And I said, look, the only way you want to get me to go anywhere is to get me a Coca-Cola bottle full of booze, corn whiskey, and I may be able to calm down enough to get some clothes on and go to the funeral. And sure enough, he did. He went out and got me a Coca-Cola bottle full of corn whiskey and brought it back. And I sipped on it very slowly because I had lost too many in my drinking career to try to gulp it down. And finally I got my clothes on and I told him that I want to take a walk down the street a few minutes. And I went down the steps and the door was open to the store. I sneaked in and tapped the till for a couple of bucks. I went down the street and bought me a pint. On the way back, I went to the little store across the street from my dad's grocery store. <clears throat> I went in and got me a couple of straws. I put the pint in the inside coat pocket, put the straws in it, and I sucked on them all the way to the cemetery. And by the time we got there, they opened the door. I just fell out of the car. I don't remember the service of anything. Now, that thing bothered me for a long, long time during my drinking career and after I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I talked this over with Millie. Millie and I talked quite a bit about AA, about our life, about our uh, defects of character, what we can do. We just love to talk to each other. And I told her this thing was still bugging me. How do you make amends, you know, to people like my mother? I don't worry about the bootleggers that I didn't pay or the gals I forgot to pay or the booze I stole or the things I, I... Those things didn't bother me too much. So what do I do about this? And Millie said, Honey, the only thing that you can possibly do that I know of that will relieve this terrible guilt is to try in some small measure to live the way she wanted you to live at, and see if this doesn't help. And I tried to do this every day of my life. Now I came in day, as I said, with no belief in the supreme being, none whatsoever. But I found out that the ones who were happily sober were the ones who believed in God. They believed in something. And I believed in nothing. So I began to read a bit. But I think the strangest thing to me, what's amazing, and I still can't quite get it, <laughs> I began to pray to a God whom I didn't even believe in, and yet it worked. God, isn't he? God is so merciful and, and kind and forgiving. If you were not a forgiving and kind and merciful God, this room wouldn't be as full as it is now, I'll tell you that. And so I began to understand a little about it. I had a little slight inkling of God. But you know, I'm a strange individual. I felt that I had some sort of a relationship with him. Uh, I prayed, and I thank, uh, I prayed in the morning, and I thanked him every night for keeping me sober and for the blessing. And, uh, but yet there was something missing, and I didn't quite know what it was. And I didn't know what to call it. So I just called it the ingredient X. Okay? That's good. 
And maybe someday if I keep digging into the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, maybe I would find it. Well, everybody has experiences in AA that does something to them as an individual. And I had this one. It's my own story. And whether, I don't know how to put it, whether you believe me or not does not make any difference to me. I'm not, I, I don't care. But I knew, I know what it had, what effect it had on my life. You know what I'm talking about? We had the cottage at Nagshead where we lived now. But it was a summer place. At this time, I suppose, Millie and I were better off in every department than we'd ever been in our lives. We had a beautiful home in Norfolk, had a cottage down at Kildovel Hills, had two automobiles, boys that worked the yard for us, made to come in two or three times a week. Things were beautiful. And I used to run down the nag head occasionally alone. When I say nag head, that's Kitty Hawk, Kildovel Hill, nag head, one big strip there. But this particular time, Millie was off somewhere. She used to go alone and talk at AA meetings or conventions or conference or whatever. But we don't leave each other anymore. I'll be 71 my next birthday, and I just don't want to be away from her uh, anymore like that. So we don't separate anymore anymore. We have to. But this time, we was, uh, she had gone off, and I got in the car and went on down to Nag's Head. And I made up my mind that I wanted to go fishing. So I set the clock, and I got up. It was still dark. I got in the car, and I rode down the beach so I could find me a cottage where it had all the shutters down so I could park in their driveway so I wouldn't have too far to walk to the beach. I found me a place. I pulled in the driveway. I got my gear out, my fishing rod, my tackle box, and I went on down to the beach. And I put this sand spike in the sand, put the rod in it. I couldn't see how to put my bait on, so I said, well, I'll wait until daylight. See, again, just a little bit. I'll stay in, smoke a cigarette, and wait. And while I was waiting, it was one of those perfect mornings down on the other banks of North Carolina. Soft wind blowing, and the water would come up on the beach and then rush back over the gravel. We have a very gravelly beach, and it would swoosh like that. It was quiet and calm. Nobody was in sight of where I was. And there I sat. And the day began to break. And this is the experience that means so much to me. The sun began to come up. And we have some of the prettiest, some of the most beautiful sunrises in the world. God, they're beautiful. And sunset. And the sun began to come up, and I felt, or it looked, as if some gigantic hand was pushing it right up out of the ocean on the horizon. And I stood there and gazed at it a few minutes, and it seemed to me that this sun was coming up this way strictly for my benefit and nobody else's. And there I stood. In God's cathedral was a front row seat watching the sun come up. And I began to cry. A big lump came in my throat. My eyes filled with tears. I got extremely emotional and shook up. And I didn't know what to do. So I just took my gear, picked it up, walked back to the car and threw it in the back of the car and went back to the cottage. And we had an old army cot in those days on the porch. I laid on that thing and I thought to myself, what in the world has happened to you? You know? In fact, for a long, long time, I wouldn't tell it to anybody. I thought maybe, you know, they think it's a little bit uh, not wrapped too tight. But I laid and I tried to think what had happened, you know, to me as an individual. And all of a sudden it hit me. Boy, this is what I've been looking for. The ingredient X. 
Now, not only do I believe in a supreme being, a God as I understand him, but now I have an awareness of God. He's not out there in the wild blue yonder somewhere. He's right here, now, this minute with me, and I know it. And that was the most beautiful thing that ever happened to me in all my life. I could end my story, I suppose. Because from then on, from there on, things began to get better. For me. Anyhow. I told you my dad had a store in the heart of the Black Belt. And just a little ways down the street there was a, an apartment building that some of the, uh, let's see, ladies of evening, put it that way. And they had one in particular. They used to sing a song. And I thought about it after I got into AA. It really applies to AA. I can't sing. But the only words I can remember, she used to sing a song that said, It's right here for you, baby. If you don't get it, it ain't no fault of mine. <laughs> and that's right. It's right here for you, baby. If you don't get it, it ain't no fault of mine. The only trouble we've got is that AA is for those who want it and not for those who need it. You know, we come into AA, and I hope it's any new in here. Don't let nobody kid you that everything is going to be rosy from here on out. Ain't so. I've had more problems since I've been sober than I did when I was drunk. Or maybe when I was drunk, I didn't realize it. Life is like an onion. You just take off one layer at a time. And sometimes you shed a few tears. But that's the way to do it. Just one layer at a time. You know, if we had life to roll along smoothly, Every day was perfect. It would be dull as hell. We need the ups and downs. I need the valley so I can appreciate the mountaintop. I'm that kind of a drunk. I'd hate to see it just nothing but sunshine every day. The only good thing about it is that those of us who are sober and following the program of Alcoholics Anonymous now I know how to handle that problem a little better. I'm able to face up to him. I don't even know how long I've talked. I looked at my watch and now I've forgotten it. Now that I've gotten this tremendous experience, everything was fine. Everything is fine. My faith was Unbelievable. I think faith is okay. It's easy to have when things are going smooth. Is when the going gets rough. That's when you separate the men from the boys. And so, I had a little experience that proved to me this can happen. I used to tell everybody how much, how much faith I had. I had an operation in 64. I had a vascular problem. I had one not long here, but yeah, a few months ago, but the same thing. Nothing away as near like the other one. But in 64, that was a duty. I was sober. I was going down to Y every day, punching a bag. At about age 58 or whatever I was at the time, I took up judo, got along real good with it. Uh, I'm a, I'm an exercise nut. I like to stay in shape. And then my legs began to bother me. And at the YMCA was a Dr. Loinberg who passed away, who was a vascular surgeon. 
And one of the boys said, ask him about it. He said, come up and see me. And I did. And he said, you need to, your arteries are clogged up with this heavy, fatty stuff or whatever. It's Dr. John here. He can probably understand what I'm talking about. I don't. Anyhow, he said, uh, you need an operation. Well, if your leg hurt, you figure he's going to cut in your leg. You know, it ain't too bad. So I decided to go to the hospital. And I got there, and then they're going to have to perform a test, a dye test. Well, a dye test, you put a little dye in your arm. That's, that was my idea. They had different ones. I think they know what I'm talking about. They gave me a heavy stuff, got me heavily sedated, and took me in this room, and I laid flat on my stomach, and they put a needle in my back, and I could hear him hitting the needle, either with the palm of his hand or a mallet or something. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. And he begged me not to move. And then he left, and he got behind his shield, and I heard him say, three, two, one, right. And all hell broke loose. It felt like someone had dumped hot molten lead from my neck down into my groin. And I screamed. I mean screamed. And when I got myself squared away, I was back in bed with glucose. I went into shock. In fact, the first picture didn't come out right and I had to do it over again. I just had a rough time. And so Millie came in. And I told her, I said, man, that was the roughest I've ever had. And uh, the doctor came in. He talked to me. And my whole attitude about that operation had changed. I went in there with, you know, okay. And he says, Isaac, let me tell you something. But the frame of mind you're in, uh, this is a serious and delicate operation. They cut you from your breastbone all as far as they can go and ream the arteries there. That was the idea. And he said, I'd prefer that you go home, settle down, make up your mind, and then come back. I'd gone through all of this. So I said, okay. I was willing to do it at first. I said, I'll let you know in the morning. He left, and Millie came in. And I was telling Millie about it. And Millie said, where is all, your, all this faith you're always talking about? And I said, well, I don't know about that either. To tell you the truth. And after she left, I thought about Jesus Christ on the cross when he said, Oh, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For a few minutes, you know, he was kind of a little doubtful, too. I don't know why i got to be any different. I couldn't go to sleep. I was nervous. And I reached over the table and I picked up a book. Some one of my buddies had brought it up to me. It was the interpretation of the twenty-third song, the most beautiful things ever been written. And what makes it so nice? It was written by one of my boys. And I had nothing else to read, so I read it. This is the strangest, craziest thing I think ever happened. And I began to read. And it said, the Lord is my shepherd. Wow. That makes good sense. And I shall not warn. And I read further. And then the clincher. Yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. I said, buddy, that's it. I closed the book and laid it down and fell asleep. The next morning, Dr. Lewinberg walked in. And I said, okay, Doc, let's get this show on the road. He looked at me and said, what in the world has happened? I said, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And so we went to the operating room. and. Formed the operation, and I came out of it. I had a rough time, and I had thousands and thousands, hundreds, not hundreds, thousands, hundreds of letters 
uh, all the friends that I had sent their minister to see me. I had Baptists, Methodists, Catholics, rabbis, everybody came up to see me. So the nurse stopped me, came in one day, she said, Mr. Copeland, can I ask you a personal question? I said, what is it, hon? What face he uses? I've seen so many different... I said, baby, in the shape I was in, I needed all the help I could get. Don't forget it. All I can get. The only one that served me, and I don't know what denomination he was. I really don't. He came in, he had a long face, and he walked in with his hands sort of together, and he walked over to the bed, and he looked down at me, and I was thinking, oh, get out. And he says, have you made your peace with God? I said, hell, I didn't know we had any disagreements. The first and only time I did it, I rang the bell and got the nurse and threw him the hell out of there. I've had a wonderful life in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Millie told you this morning, we've got a little old cinder block place down in Nags Head. Got drunks in and out of it. It's full of love. A lot of mementos from people who bought us things, turned us things. We've sold up a lot of drunks in there with hero syrup or honey and orange juice. You know, a man that's got a roof over his head and a woman that really and truly loves him, nice box full of food, he is really and truly blessed man, really and truly. If he doesn't think he is blessed, he's either underage or overeducated. One or the other. I've gotten to the point now in life and in AA life that I don't ask God for things anymore. I have stopped it really and truly. I spend all my time in the evening or early in the morning thanking God for all the blessings that I've got. All the blessings that he's given me. Because I've gotten now everything that I need. I haven't got everything I want, but I've got everything I need. And the craziest thing is that the, now that I've got what I need, these are the things that I really wanted in the first place. We both don't work. I don't want nobody offering me no damn job either. I ain't bugging nobody. Millie is 11 years younger than I am, and she says she may go to work. I'll let her make the living, and I'll make her living worthwhile. We've got friends all over, everywhere. We stopped in Charleston on the way down. Went to a meeting and saw some the lovely, lovely people that I'm just in love with every every one of them, and they're here this morning. And why they came to hear me this second time, I'll never know. That's a long distance as far as I'm concerned over these mountains. But I am extremely fortunate and lucky. They told me when I was a kid that Jews were God's chosen people. I got into AA and y'all told me that the alcoholics for God's chosen people. Well, that's okay. I've been twice blessed. (laughs) 
You know, all of you know that AA stands for Alcoholics Anonymous. Did you know that it also stands for the Almighty's arms? It's big enough, long enough to envelop and just take us all in. Uh, I'm not a religious man. I said I, I'm just a simple individual who believes in a supreme being, who worships God in his own simple way. And I talk to him as I'm talking to you. In fact, when I'm talking to God, my mouth doesn't get as dry as it is now. Because I can talk to him a lot easier than I can you. And he understands me, I think. And I know he loves me because I'm still here. I was a kind of a drunk who would go to Ocean View and they had a storm and I'd run up and down the beach and curse him and dare him to strike me dead. That was the kind of a nut I was. You can't do this too often and keep friends either. We'll walk away from you. Now, I don't know what the future holds for me. I have no idea. I haven't got it made yet. Well, and I just celebrated our 29th birthday in a, this past Christmas. And it don't mean a, nothing. I'm as interested, as enthused, and as teachable now as I was when I first came here. And my heart swelled when I see these young ones coming in that don't have to go through all the hell and the misery that we, the we, ones that came in at such a late age. I met a young man yesterday. I know he's here somewhere. And all, I can remember his first name, Terry. He looked like a, a, God, he looked like he was young enough to see my grandson. If he stays sober long enough, he can celebrate 50 years of sobriety. And I think it's beautiful. And as I said before, I don't know what the future holds. Nobody does. I may go out of here after I leave here and get drunk and die in some gutter in some strange town. I don't know. I really don't. The only thing I do know is that if my attitude is like it is, like it was when I got up this morning, then I'll be all right. Because I've gotten to the stage in life now that my main purpose in life, my main purpose in life is not to cause God any grief. I don't want him to be sorry that he gave me a second chance at life. So if I get up tomorrow morning with the attitude that I've got now, not to cause God any grief, I know my cup will run it over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen, and God bless you. Thank <laughs> you.